this morning about Romans that has been over my life for about 40 years now. And uh, I think it's a fascinating book, but I think it's also very practical. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, if we understand what Paul was saying to the church and what he was trying to do to unite that church that was divided over ethnic issues,
anybody in the church, and I mean, uh, let's say the church at large, they talk about the church of Christ also, but what do you think? Thomas Campbell wrote the uh, Declaration of Independence. What was his goal? To unite people in different denominations. And what was, uh, how did he want to go about doing that? What did he propose doing? You had to have a foundational basis. Yeah, and that basis was the exact letter of the law. His term was uh, expressive that he used. But what is uh, example? How's it going? Command, reprimand, example, and uh, inference, I think. Something like that. Well, how did that work out? Pretty well at first. Huh? Pretty well at first. At, at first, for a while it did, but then that broke up into what? The disciples and the Christian church and the church of Christ. And even the Church of Christ, um, trying to follow the level of the law. Well, my wife and I got baptized in 1979. And I was working at a post office, and there was a guy came in, and he uh, mentioned that he was a member of the Church of Christ. And uh, I said, yeah, we, I was just baptized in the Church of Christ. He said, oh, yeah, what, what church is that? And I, I, I named the church. said, so, well, that's the wrong one. <laughs> even though the Church of Christ is the wrong one. But sometimes we follow the letter of the law can cause people to be divided. Now, look at—I want you to—if you got that handout, if you look at it, uh, say biblically there seems to be one common denominator: human beings cannot get along because we suffer from a devastating disease of the mind and soul that is pathological and pandemic in nature. And then I cite a couple of these uh, passages in James, for instance. Uh, James 4, 1 through 4 says, Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do not come from your cravings that are war within you. You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. And that word is translated here as covet. It's sometimes translated as lust or desire. In the Greek word, epithumia. And James says this epithumia or this desire or coveting is at the root of disputes and conflicts. And then he actually does a diagnosis on a kind of individual basis. James 1, 12 through 16. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life and the that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one when tempted should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, that's that word, being lured and enticed by them, when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death, do not be, be deceived, my beloved. You understand what James is saying here? Is there's a process. Sin, even sin of disharmony. And it is a sin. 
It starts from desire first. You know what happened to David and Bathsheba? I think that's a perfect example of what James is talking about here because what happened to David? He went up on the roof, remember? And he looked across the way and saw Bathsheba taking a bath. And instead of turning away, he got carried away by his desire. And look what happened to him. He became a murderer, a liar, all of that because he got carried away by his desire. And that's what James talking about here. So I would suggest that uh, this desire word, uh, lust, or whatever you want to have it translate, is really at the heart of what uh, Paul is getting at. Uh, look at the a little further on that outline. I want to suggest that Romans is called diagnosis, prognosis, and regimen for the disease of sin that had infected the church of Rome. His remedy in short is Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. That's his basic outline for what he's going to talk about here, the cure for disharmony. Now, what he's trying to do here is try to heal the rift in that church between the Jewish converts who followed the letter of the law and the Gentile converts who never did follow the law, and they still don't. And that wouldn't be a problem. You know, Paul didn't have a problem. If you want to follow the law, go ahead. But don't enforce it on somebody else. And don't judge those people. I'm going to show you what the Jewish converts were doing. Well, first, we got to get some definitions, I guess, and some insights from people who lived around the time that Paul was writing. One mistake that people make today is we try to interpret Paul as if he lived in America in 2019. He didn't. He was a Hellenistic Jew. He knew rhetoric. He knew stoic philosophy. He was a very educated person. And you know, it's, it's really a shame that the consensus in biblical scholarship today is that Paul was an incoherent thinker, that he forgot what he wrote over here, and he contradicted himself. You know, I read that and I say, you know, these people really don't understand what Paul is doing. It's not Paul who's incoherent. It's these people who think they're scholars and think they know everything. If you really try to look at what he's saying and learn a little rhetoric yourself and learn a little philosophy yourself and look at the Hebrew scripture written in Greek, then you can kind of understand what Paul is saying. So anyway, this is a, a, a passage from uh, one of Cicero's works, a, a Roman guy. He had Greek teachers who taught him rhetoric. And in that, he's describing uh, types of arguments that you would use, uh, or suggested arguments known. Anyway, he, he names one part of the speech called a partition. And an argument of partition correctly made renders the whole speech clear and perspicuous. The partition takes two forms, both of which contribute greatly to clarifying the case and determining the nature of the controversy. One form shows in what we agree with our opponents and what is left in dispute, 
As a result of this, some definite problem is set for the auditor on which you ought to have your attention fixed. And I believe that's the kind of partition that Paul uses in Romans. And once you understand that, it clarifies the whole argument. The partition in Romans, I believe, runs from 118 through 331. And 118 through 32 is what is agreed upon. So listen to what he says. Romans 118 through 25 first. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, that's that word again, to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth by God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul never names the subject that he's talking about there. He uses the third person plural pronoun, they. So who is he talking about? Not him. Huh? Not him. Not him? <coughs> who, is it, who is it that, or who was it that worshiped Idols in the forms of animals and even human beings and yeah, the Egyptians, for instance, remember the jackal-headed god. Then you had the pantheon of the Greek gods and the Roman gods. So I think that Paul is really talking about the Gentiles, the Gentile sense, and he goes on. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passion. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them up to, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, Malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness, their gossipers, slanderers, God haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious for our parents, foolish, faithless, heartless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but applaud others who practice them as well. Now look at that list of sins here sinful action that all started from God gave them up to this epithemia, to their own desires or their lusts. And then they do all these other things. But look at those list of things there. You see anything interesting about that? Rebellions towards parents. Okay. And that's in there with murderers, thieves, Licentiousness. It's 
took me a long time to find out what that word means, but it just sounds bad, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm sorry? <laughs> well, uh, I think it means uh, sexual depravity, let's say, or immorality, sexual immorality, I believe. But what else? Did you see anything else that looks like maybe it shouldn't be in there? Along with vertebrae and all these other sins that are pretty obvious. I mean. God haters. God haters. Strife. Strife. Envy. Deceit. Gossips. Slanders. Insolent. Pirate. Boastful. Boasting sin? Well, he sticks it in there with all the rest of them. Now, if he's talking right now to the Jewish converts who are judging the Gentiles, <laughs> exactly. I think they're amen and all this. Get them, Brother Paul. <laughs> Let them have it. Right on, Paul. All the way down the list. I can see an amen there. But look at these strife words. If you look at the New Testament over and over again, look at Galatians, Paul talks about the works of the law, obvious fornication, impure, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissension, factions. All those things, these are divisive terms. Division, disharmony. He puts them right in there with these top ten sins. Murder, adultery, fornication, all of those things. First friend, the same thing. As long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, arguing out of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations, strife, jealousy, quarrel, and boasting. Now, look what Aristotle says about boasting. When Aristotle is talking about virtue and vice. So he's talking about one of the vices now. The man who pretends to more merit than he possesses for no ulterior object, seems, it is true, to be a person of inferior character. Since otherwise, he would not take pleasure in falsehood, but he appears to be more foolish than vicious. When, on the other hand, a man exaggerates his own merits to gain some, some object, if that object is glory or honor, he is not very much to be blamed as his boaster. But if he boasts to get money or things that fetch money, this is more unseemly. Boastfulness is not a matter of potential capacity, but of deliberate, deliberate purpose. A man is a boaster if he has a fixed disposition to boast a boastful character. So Paul throws boasting in there because somebody in the church is judging their fellow members in the church and they're boasting over them. Look at those old Gentiles over there. Eating that gumbo with pork and shrimp in it. <laughs> we don't do that. You ever know any self righteous people in the church? <laughs> I heard somebody say, You don't know any self righteous, you probably self righteous one. But <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you what, how do you combat? And see, this is what we're trying to figure out. Paul is trying to combat the division in the church that really stems from self-righteousness, and look at us, we can keep the law, we do it right, we do everything right. No, those Gentiles are not doing anything right. 
How do you get somebody to look at themselves and see that you're no better than anybody else? You're sinners just like everybody else. Well, look at what Paul said. All right, remember the partition, this type of partition. First you show what you agree with your rhetorical opponent on, and then what's in dispute. And I think that's where Paul shifts now. He shifts dramatically from the third person plural they for the Gentiles and look at two, two, one through five. Therefore, you have no excuse whoever you are when you judge others. Now notice, the pronoun is, is a singular second person now. Therefore, you have no excuse whoever you are when you judge others for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same thing. Now, all those people who go out, amen, Paul, get them. <laughs> I bet they hear snap back. What are you talking about? We never we followed the, the letter of the law all our lives. What are you talking? And what is he doing? This is a charge here. He's, he's making an accusation. What is he charging him with? talk about that later. He certainly is going to uh, bring that in and correct their boasting. But what does he really accuse them of right there? Why? Huh? Yeah, he says you, the judge, are doing the very same thing. Now if he's talking to the Jewish Congress, when did they do the very same thing? When did they go into idolatry? When were they murderers? Adulterers? When in their history did they do that? When they were slaves. Alright, when they were slaves in Egypt. But later on, when they were free people, when God had delivered them from bondage, in the Exodus, all Jewish people, there's a rabbinic scholar named Jacob Neusner, and he says that every Judaism, all throughout history, look at history in the form of paradigms. And the paradigms, it starts with Adam, and then Sinai, the giving of the law, and then the exile, the Babylonian invasion. Why did Babylon, according to Ezekiel, and I think Ezekiel played a big part in Romans. Paul is alluding to a lot of things that happened in Ezekiel. Why did God bring, and, and this is what Yahweh says in Ezekiel, he called Nebuchadnezzar my servant to execute the death penalty on Israel for all this sin and idolatry. So, Paul is making the charge. And who does he bring to the witness stand to prove the charge? This is what we're going to see as we go through Romans. He brings God himself to the witness stand. It's God who said, I executed the death penalty on you for all of your sins and idolatry. Even at one point, 
uh, in Ezekiel, God says, I gave you laws that were not good so that you could not be because they kept rebelling against him. And he said, you even offered up your firstborn children to the fire. Child sacrifice. This is what God was accusing him of, and this is why he executed the death penalty on So the exile, who says you were sinners like a Gentile? God himself says. Where? Go back to Ezekiel. And that's what God said. <coughs> so all these Jewish people in that church, in that congregation, they knew their Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, fall backwards and forwards. And they could pick up on the illusion that we miss a lot of times because we're not you know, familiar with it. But when Paul says, and there are a lot of illusions that he makes, I think they pick it up right away. But he still got to convince them. That he says that you're doing the very same things. So now he's got the attention. That's just the beginning of the speech. Let's go on a little further. Look at the rest of the verses 2, 1 through 5. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine whoever you are, that when you judge those who do the same thing and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God, or do you despise the richness of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then I put the Greek in there because there's a word in there, uh, sclerotata. You see that? Sclerotata. I think that's a direct allusion to Ezekiel. When God tells Ezekiel, you go to these people, but they're not going to listen to you because they don't listen to me. Look what he said in Ezekiel 3, 4 through 7. He said to me, Marlon, go to the house of Israel and speak my very words to them. For you are not sent to a people of obscure speech and difficult language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of obscure speech and difficult language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to them, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. And in Greek, that's the word I put in bold as sclerocardia. You know what a cardi cardiologist is? Mm -hmm. A heart doctor, right? Well, this is where it comes from, cardia here. And sclero means heart. That's the same or former word that Paul uses about your heart and impenitent heart. And I think the, people, the Jewish people in there who go to synagogue every Sabbath and listen to the scriptures being read, they would pick up on that right away. God said he had a hard heart, and he still got a hard heart, and a hard head, and he don't listen to it. So he's trying to knock them down from being so self-righteous, and this is one form of the way to do it. He's referring back to Ezekiel, when they were punished for their sins, God executed the death penalty on them. And then for the long in chapter 2, he's still in the partition where he's Informing his audience of what his argumentative strategy is going to be. And I think that his people, his audience would understand right away, I think 
they, you know, they weren't literate like we are. We read it, but they knew how to listen. And look at what this uh, Jewish scholar Boaz, Boaz Cohen says about Romans. As a protagonist of a new religion, Paul was very much interested in reaching the Jews as well as the Gentiles. Consequently, he uses Jewish and Greek learning to discredit Jewish law by methods employed by advocates in the law courts to win a case. Hence, he coined the antithesis between letter and spirit, the letter and spirit of the law, which is an amalgam of the familiar Greek antiquity, so on and so forth. And then Cicero, again, from the principle describing the argumentative strategy of the letter and spirit of the law, because Paul actually uses those words when he said that circumcision is not a matter of the flesh, but of the spirit. Not literal, but in the spirit. This is how Cicero describes uh, this kind of strategy. From the principle of that advantage and honor, he may show how inexpedient and base is the course of conduct which the opponents say we were or are bound to follow, and how advantageous and honorable is our act or request. Then they would value the law not because of words, which are but faint and feeble indications of intention, but because of the advantage of the principles which they embody and the wisdom and care of the lawmakers. Next thing they set forth the true nature of law, that it may be shown to consist of meanings, not of words, and that the judge who follows the meaning may seem to comply with the law more than one who follows the letter. So now Paul is informing his audience that he's going to argue from the letter and spirit of the law, and he's going to advocate following the intent or spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law, because this is what the Jewish Congress are doing. Judging the Gentiles because they keep the letter of the law. Let's think about what that means. What, what kind of argument is this? When I was here at Pepperdine, Richard, there was an article in the graphics uh, written by a guy, supposedly, uh, who taught traffic school down in Alabama. You know, traffic school that you go there and you want to get the ticket removed from your record. And he said this one guy told a story about why, how he wound up in traffic school. He said, so one night, he got the munchies in the middle of the night and he drove down TTH trying to find a store that was open. And he got further down PCH, and he had stopped at a red light, and he noticed that he was right in the middle of a car on this side and a car on this side, and there were rival gangs, he was right in the middle of it. And they were, you know, adjusting at each other, and all of a sudden, he looked over there, and one of the guys in the car had a crossbow trying to shoot at the other guys, this guy in the middle, and he shot the guy and pinned him to his Mercedes. I don't know if it's true or not, but it was in the graphics, so it must be true. <laughs> so he tried, tried to get to the hospital, bleeding, arrow in the shoulder, and a cop stopped him. And he said, okay, buddy, where's the fire? He said, I got an arrow in my shoulder, I got to get to the hospital. He said, look, I hear all kinds of excuses, <laughs> but I got to give you a ticket. So this is what the guy said. This is how he wound up in traffic school. Now I'm going to ask you to just think about giving another example here. But if you were that guy as a lawyer and you want to fight that ticket, you know, what kind of strategy would you use? All right, while you're thinking about that, let me give you another example. How many people in here are old enough to remember uh, 
the TV series Chips. Remember Ponch and I forget the other guy's name, Ponch and John. Uh, I remember one episode where the guy was, uh, he and his wife were expecting, middle of the night, the wife says, okay, honey, it's time to go to the hospital. And the guy throws the suitcase in there, gets his wife in the car, rushes off to the hospital. Okay, buddy, where's the car? Punch and pajama. And what do they do? He said, Look, my wife about to have this baby in there now. What do you think Punch does? Escort Yeah, he said, Come on, follow me, turn on the Escort him to the hospital. Everything works out all right. They named the baby after Punch. <laughs> Even though the little girl was named Punchita. <laughs> <laughs> but let's say, let's change it up a little bit. Instead of punching John being on duty that night, it was just Officer Hardnose who gave the other guy a ticket and a crossbow uh, arrow in the show. So the guy gets his wife in the car, throws a suitcase in there, rushes off to the house, he's speeding. He also Hardnose stops him and the guy says, hey, why about to have a baby in the car? He said, look, I just gave a guy a ticket and had an arrow in his shoulder. <laughs> you know you're going to get one. So he gives the guy a ticket, the guy goes off, he's mad and everything. He goes, now how, how would, what kind of strategy would you use to tell the judges you shouldn't have to pay for that ticket? I'm not going to name my baby after you. What do you think? Well, I think I was, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I watch a lot of TV shows. I watch Judge Mathis and so on. <laughs> I would say, Your Honor, I might have broken the letter of the law, but I was keeping the real intent or spirit of the law. So what is, if you tell the judge that, then you gotta show them what the intent really is. What's the intent of stealing the law? To what? Be safe on the road, protect others and yourself. To save lives, right? And you say, look, I was saving the guy who had the cross where I was I was trying to save my own life before I fled to death. So I broke the letter of the law, but I was following the real intent of it. And the same with the guy who brings his wife to the hospital. I'm trying to get my wife and unborn child to the hospital, so I actually find what is the real intent of speeding law? <coughs> is it just to slow people down so somebody can, you know, sit up on the mountain and say, look at that fool, man, slow down. But what's the real intent? They do all kinds of surveys to see what is the maximum speed, safe speed, that will save the maximum amount of lives and injuries and all of that accidents on, these, on this road under these conditions, and that's how they determine, some uh, government body determines that this is the maximum speed here. The point, the intent is not really just to make people slow down. I mean, unless you're talking about speed travel, something like that. But it's really to save lives, isn't it? So, Again, I think I would argue that it might not work, but Your Honor, I was really obeying the intent of spirit of the law, which is to save lives, even though I broke. Look, people break the letter of the law all the time, speaking of. Police do it, don't they? They don't get tickets for it. Problems do it, ambulances do it, because they are following the intent of the lawmaker. And this is the kind of argument that Paul is doing here. 
he's going to have to, in Romans, he's going to try to show these people that God doesn't judge people based on following the letter of the law. And we've got to figure out what God's really intent behind the law really was. So this is his strategy. He said the same thing basically in uh, Romans 3, 21 through 26. The righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effected through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, <clears throat> salvation acquittal or is it pardon? God's gift of salvation, justification. What does acquittal mean? When you hear that, you find that guilty. What does pardon mean? You're guilty of sin, but the judge or the king or whoever it is had mercy on you. That's grace. That's exactly what Paul is doing. And he's trying to get these people. You haven't been acquitted. You know, you weren't so right. You didn't hurt. Somebody I heard a long time ago preaching in the church said, if you do these five steps to plan salvation, God owes you salvation. God doesn't owe us anything. What do we have to be bargaining with God? Nothing. God owns the universe. When I came to Christ, came out of desperation. I had to hit rock bottom. Marcy and I were about to get a divorce. We separated for months. And I tried to bargain with God. But God, you get my family back together. Tell Mark to come back to me, give me. I go to church every Sunday. I put money in the collection. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. And so finally, I gave up. I said, okay, Lord. You just, I, I'm not even going to ask you anymore. Just give me the wisdom to understand what's going on. And I stopped trying to bargain with God, and everything came together. I went outside and cleaned the garage one day, and then Marcy said, I want to come back. And I've been thankful to God ever since. But that was a gift, but God has shown me you don't have anything to bargain with. And that's what Paul is trying This is what grace is here. But see, the thing about grace is, it's like, Paul called it a gift, and it is a gift. 
But you gotta accept the gift. <laughs> Anybody ever give you something that <laughs> yeah, you know, the guy gives you a tie that man, I can't wear that thing anyway. <laughs> or your, your aunt gives you a portrait of herself. Know she's coming over, you heard her get that thing out of the closet and hang it up. <laughs> you know, like it's been there all the time. As soon as she leaves, back in the closet. <laughs> so, this is what faith is faith is ascending to God's pardon. God extends the pardon to everybody. That's what Paul is trying to teach it. He's trying to tell them. You don't have any right to judge anybody because you're all been pardoned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see? When you keep the letter of the law, God's not going to judge you on the letter of the law. We're going to get to that tomorrow. What God judges people on. And this is, you know, this is, I think, the problem that we have. And this is why I'm doing this, writing this book on Romans, trying to get this message out. Because the message has been so confused when Paul says the whole law is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. He says you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, all these, and every other commandment he says is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. How often do you hear that? And I turn on the TV in the morning, Sunday morning. You know what I hear? You give God and God's going to prosper us. This gospel of prosperity is all over the place. You know, the message gets lost. It's not, you know, this is this is the gospel that Paul is talking about here. It's love. And I'm going to show you something else about love. Because I believe that love is a different kind of justice. Look at what Aristotle says here. If then our definition of equity is correct, it is easy to see what things and persons are equitable or not. Actions which should be leniently treated are cases for equity. Errors and wrong acts and misfortune must not be thought deserving of the same penalty. Misfortunes are all such things as are unexpected and not vicious. Errors are not unexpected but are not vicious. Wrong acts are such that might be expected as vicious, but acts committed through desire rise from vice. It is equitable to pardon human weaknesses and to look not to the law but to the legislator, not to the letter of the law, but to the intention of the legislator. And I'm going to suggest tomorrow, and when Paul talks about love in chapter 10 all the way through chapter 14, he's trying to get those people to see that this is equity. It was, it's fair and just to all people. Equity is justice that goes beyond the written law. And this is why Paul says, Oh, nobody, anything but to love one another, one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And this is what we owe to everybody, and this is what Paul is trying to get them to see. Let me stop right here and ask if any of this is making any kind of sense at all. 
Do you see what the problem might be in that Roman church? And do you see how this is a problem in a lot of churches today? People being self-righteous? Judging other people? Boasting against other people? Forming cliques in the church? And how often do you hear love your neighbor as yourself? You know, one good thing that's coming out of all of this situation that we have now, this political mess that we're in, with all this division and everything. You know, I hear people who I know even thought were Christian on some of these uh, news programs talking about Christianity now. And I've heard people say, Real Christianity is love your neighbor as yourself. I didn't even know that person was a Christian. <laughs> but I think it's bringing it out in, in some people because there are some sincere people out there, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I believe people, some people are seeing it. And this is, this is what we've got to do tomorrow. You know, I'm trying to get into this when we go all the way through the argument and everything and suggest that there are a lot of sincere Christians, I think, in this nation in this world. But they're just not getting the message. It's not being reinforced on them. You know, maybe we'll start something. We're trusting we might start something. We can go back to our congregation, go back to our neighborhoods and, and really put this into practice. That's our preacher. Why don't you ever talk about love your neighbor? Jesus said the you know the greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. I don't ever hear anybody talk about that. He just talked about how much money we ought to be giving. Talk about this. We, we'll talk about this some more tomorrow. 
You see what it says, Romans 5, 12 through 21? This is what he talks about, Adam. Therefore, this sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spreads to all because of all the sin. Sin is even in the world before the law, but it, sin is not reckoned where there is no law. Yet death exercised the meaning from Adam to Moses, even though those who sin were not like the transition of Adam, who is the type of the one to come. And he goes so on and so on about talking about Adam here. But why are you talking about Adam? Do you know that there are two creation stories of human beings in Genesis? Did you know that? Look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish in the sea, over the birds of the air, and so forth. Cattle, wild animals of the earth, every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. All right. In chapter 1, 26 to 27, God creates human beings in his image. Then you go to chapter 2, verse 7. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb in the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and here was no one, to, and there was no one to till the ground, but a spring would rise from the earth, and water the whole face of the ground, and then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, look at what the Jewish writer, theologian, Philo says about that passage on page 7. After this, he said, God formed man by taking clay from the earth and breathing to his face the breath of life. Genesis 2, 7, the one we just looked at. This man made out of clay. By this also, we show very clearly that there's a vast difference between the man thus formed and the man that came into existence after the image of God. For the man so formed is an object of sense perception, partaking already of such or such quality, consisting of body and soul, man or woman, by nature moral, while he that was after the divine image was an idea or type or seal, an object of thought, incorporeal, neither male nor female, by nature incorruptible. That's the one who was made in God's image in chapter 1. It says, however, that the formation of the individual man, the object of sense, is a composite one made up of earthly substance and of divine breath. For it says that the body was made through the artificer, taking clay and molding out of it a human form, but that the soul was originated from nothing created whatever, but from the father and rule of all. For that which he breathed in was nothing else than the divine breath that migrated hither, hither from that blissful and happy existence for the benefit of our race, to the end that, even if it is moral in respect of its visible part, it may in respect of the part that is invisible be rendered immoral. Hence it may with propriety be said that man is the borderline between moral and immoral nature, partaking of each so far as is needful, and that he was created at once moral and immoral, moral in respect of the body, but in respect of the mind, immortal. You see what Philo was saying here about, uh, commenting about the two creations in Genesis? That God made, and we are the earthly 
And the reason we have such problems with murder and licentiousness and gossip and all of those other things is because we were made out of clay. You don't believe we were made out of dirt? You don't believe me, do you? Where does all the food that we get come from? Exactly. All the milk, vitamins, and all that comes from the ground. Ultimately. Right? Light travels 93 million miles from the sun. Light energy lands on the <coughs> leaves of the green plant. Through photosynthesis, it changes into another form of energy. Cows come along, eat those plants. They take that energy in. Ronald McDonald comes along, makes hamburgers out of the cow. We buy it, take that energy, but ultimately it comes from the dirt. The plants are down in the dirt and all the minerals and everything. And this is why we have such a battle because we are always fighting our earthly nature. Think what Paul says in Colossians 3 5 11, also on page 7. Put to death, therefore, Whatever in you is earthly. And there he uses the same term, gates. From the earth, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, as that ever familiar word again, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of this, deeds of wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you once followed. When you were living that life, and now you must get rid of all such things anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practice and clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, sentient, slave, and free, but Christ. There are no things that separate us in Christ. And look at all of the uh, socioeconomic status. Ethnicity, all those things. He, he said there's no more of that. We're all being created in the image of God. And all those things don't matter anymore. When we get to chapter 7, we're going to see the struggle that Paul was talking about that we have with this clay. And it's a battle every day. That's what they were doing in the church that separated them. That's what we do in our families, in the country. We gotta put to death those things. I'm gonna stop right there. We got about three or four more minutes. Any, anybody wanna say anything? Yes. I've noticed in visiting different churches that there seems to be a movement that way. Uh, on their door, there was two phrases: love God, and love others. Well, going in the right direction. Anybody? Well, again, thank you for being here, and thank you for being so attentive. I really appreciate it. Uh, you want to hear the rest of it? Come back tomorrow, same time, same station. Mm -hmm.